Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is poet and Faber poetry editor Matthew Hollis, whose first prose work is an account of the last four years of the life of the poet Edward Thomas, who died on the first day of the Arras Offensive on Easter Monday 1917. Edward Thomas was born in London in 1878, and after coming down from Oxford, earned his living as a hack writer of biographies and travelogues, and as an acerbic literary critic. Such was his influence that the Times called him the man with the keys to the paradise of English poetry. And yet in 1913, when this book starts, Thomas is in his mid-thirties, still prone to bouts of depression, and has not yet begun writing poetry. It would take his friendship with American poet Robert Frost to encourage him to commit his thoughts to verse. And in the space of two brief years, there would come a great flowering of the poetry that seemed to have been accumulating unacknowledged inside him. A body of work that has been described as the hinge between the old and the new worlds, and whose admirers have included W.H. Auden, Philip Larkin and Ted Hughes. I began by asking Matthew what it was about Edward Thomas's life and work that had tempted him to write his first prose work. Well, actually, it was the story and the thing that attracted me to the book, which was probably not the fact that I wrote poetry, published poetry, and edited poetry. It was the story, it was the remarkable story of a man that was constantly struggling with depression and crippled his adult life. And was a hack writer, producing 24 books um, and maybe 2,000 reviews before he'd ever written a poem. And really, at the at the end of his wits, and unable to find a form and format that seemed to justify his talents, uh, and one day he meets a young, relatively unknown American poet called Robert Frost, who just moved to London. And the two of them, over Frost's book, form a friendship, and Thomas recognises Frost's outstanding brilliance, which the other critics weren't doing at the time. And Frost recognised in Thomas the poetry that he hadn't yet written. And the two of them have an extraordinary friendship that changes both of their lives, and in many ways changes the poetry to come in the 20th century. And I think what I really wanted to do was just share that story and try and tell it as clearly and as effectively as I possibly could. And there's a whole milieu, isn't there? A whole literary scene that you're evoking, which was based not very far from where we're sitting today, around a, a poetry book, so that's how you begin the book. Could you even tell me? about that, that, the, the nature of the literary world that you, that you tried to explore. 1913 was an extraordinary time in England, not just in poetry, but suffragettes were taking up direct action, unionists were organising strikes, the agricultural labour force was disenfranchised, Ireland seemed to be on the point of civil war. It was an extraordinary time, it sometimes said that had the First World War not come along, uh, something might very radical have happened um, in England at the time, and the poets themselves were having a some radical experimentation, and it all organised around, or much of it organised around, a fantastic place where the poetry bookshop had opened in the first week of 1913. And it was a, uh, a place where you went to buy your latest poetry books and find out what was going on. It was a place that you went to hear readings. It was a place in which poets were published in a magazine and books. And perhaps best of all, after they got too drunk to go home, it had two floors of dormitories where they could sleep it up upstairs. And it became an absolute centre of activities which began perhaps harmoniously and very soon ended in struggles, even to the point where one young man, um, known to many of us as Ezra Pound, was so fed up with some of his peers that he actually turned one of them to a duel. And what, what kind of literary current, you said we were sort of an immediate pre-war era, what, what are the literary currents that are sort of eddying around the poetry bookshop? 
Well, I think there was a feeling that Victorian England was exhausted politically and in um, literary terms too. And by that I mean that um, these sort of grand imperial poems that perhaps was represented by Richard Kipling or something like that that have seemed to speak somehow for the empire about values of public school and uh, stiff upper lip and technically very often stuffy forms of poetry in a way. I think those were thought to have been tired and outmoded and, and a young generation of poets that included the Sir Cranbrook also. Rupert Brooke and Robert Frost. Uh, Yeats was older, but he was very much involved in London scenes. Yes, Elliot would be crossing through London very soon indeed. Robert Graves was published there and so on. Soon, all for all involved with poetry culture. I think they felt, in, in Hans' words, that it was necessary to make it new. And they did so in rather different and sometimes quite radical um, experimental forms that, as I say, didn't always agree with one another, but it did make it a tremendously thrilling time for new writers emerging poetry. As you said at the beginning, although Edward Thomas himself at this stage wasn't a practicing poet, he was very much a playmaker in the literary scene, the Times, um, the Times referred to him as the one who had the keys to English literature. So what, why was that? What, what was it about his, um, his reviews, his, his literary personality that gave him such importance? Well, he was a fearless critic. I think that's the key thing. He was fearless. And he was a man that in all kept his own constituency, though he knew many of the poets personally. Uh, he was never afraid when his friends gave him manuscripts to tell them exactly what he thought of them. He hurt many of his friends' feelings along the way by doing so. But he was a critic of huge integrity and a very brilliant one too. He could send up the literary establishment with the likes of Rupert Brooke, who got a terribly hard time in reviews of his first book. But Thomas realised that what he was doing was um, essentially a, a cry of youth that was a very important one. And he sent up his um, conservative colleagues very nicely by saying that Rupert Brooke should be read by anyone over 40 who has never been under 40. Uh, he also took on a review of the most popular poet of the day, which is an American called Ella Neal Wilcox. Still hard to say. And uh, he read the review ironically, and he ended up praising her for having quite a light sympathy with all sorts of ideas. A light sympathy with all sorts of ideas. I mean, absolutely withering, very witty and very funny. And he also managed to identify the Bernard Poem before anyone else did, really. Um, and was an early champion of Montreal Mayor, and um, W.H. Davis, and as I say, really, um, the first person to give weight to the new work of this young American called Robert Frost. And of course, we can all think of latter-day examples of, of brilliant, very sharp, sometimes acerbic critics, who themselves are not practitioners of art, and sometimes difficult, isn't it, to go from being that kind of critic to being someone who exposes themselves by putting poetry or whatever in front of the living public. I suppose that's true, but what was clearly going on in Edward Thomas was that he was finding his way to poetry even then when he was working on his prose and prose criticism. And I think he used the arena of criticism to, to work out to sift through what he thought was valuable about poetry. And when he does meet prose, and the both of them have particular ideas about the kind of rhythm and cadence and what Frost calls the sound of sense to direct the energy of a poem. Thomas himself had been having exactly the same ideas for 10 years and been saying so in his reviews. But he'd, he'd taken criticism to work it out, whereas Frost had taken poetry. Did it also, in addition to his own working through, did it also take Frost to catalyse his emergence as a poet? I think it certainly did. Uh, famously, the two of them spent much of 1914 together walking through the fields of Gloucestershire where Frost was, was living. Um, and on these walks, 
what Frostic like to call his talks walking. Uh, they cover many, many miles, sometimes um, up to 25 miles in one day, uh, which was a lot because he used to complain about that, but that was nothing for Thomas, and he did it very regularly. But they were talking about ideas about poetry as well as the war, and their theories of kind of dance that the poets they liked. And there seems to be no doubt in the story that Edward Thomas gave Robert Frost his latest prose book, which was called The Feast of Spring. And Frost supposedly thumbed through it very casually and said, well, the poetry is already there. It just, you just have to go back and declare it in verse form in exactly the same cadence. And that's pretty much what Edward Thomas did. And that is quite an astonishing process, isn't it, to see it happening. You also quote his notebooks from the, the famous day when he goes to Edelstrop, which later turns into his most famous poem. And already, some of the imagery, some of the rhythm is already there. And it's, al it's almost like seeing something emerging, you know, seeing the verse emerging from what is latent in the prose. And I, I don't think I've seen that quite so dramatically demonstrated before in the prose work. I think that's right, and that's what we were saying a moment ago about the poetry finding its way out, um, welling up, bubbling up through the prose criticism that he was writing. And for his life, Thomas was a keeper of notebooks, and when he walked, he would drop down the landscape around him, the, the wildlife, the flowers, whatever he was thinking about at the time. And that material often had many resources. It went on to become his, his typographic prose books that he was commissioned to do. Sometimes he did three or four a year, and he wrote exhaustively of it. But also he went back to use those same notebooks, but sometimes even the same published prose sources to find material from his poems when they came. And when they did come, they got they came quickly. Yeah, I was going to say, um, because there was this long gestation, perhaps even subconscious, when he does become a poet, he is fully formed remarkably quickly, isn't he? And then there's a sort of outpouring of poetry in a short period. That's right, well, he's 36, really, when he attempts his first serious poem. There have been earlier attempts and get to Jubilee and university and, and little bits, but really, uh, when, it, when it starts, which is in December 1914, um, more than just a few months old, there is a watershed, and he writes 140-plus poems in practically little more than two years before he's killed. I, I loved the remark that his friend, Eleanor Fargin, made about this transition from not being a poet to being a poet. And she says, he's not a different man. He's the same man, but in a different key. And I thought that was a wonderful way of expressing it. Because you sort of, you sort of see this depression that has dogged him in some, in some way alleviating because he now has this idea of poetry. And I thought that sort of shift into like he was a very kind of expressive way of, of conveying it. I think that's true. And he does, something does completely change in him that is certainly about the outpouring of poetry. And it goes on to be about the war too, because he's a man that has felt hopelessly out of control uh, of his own destination as well. And when the war comes along, he is a man that is an anti-nationalist. Uh, he falls out with his father and one of his closer friends were refusing to say that Germans are less people than Englishmen. And he says that he has no, he does not grow hot with love of Englishmen. And he's, he's, he's very angry with the, what he sees as the racism and the jingoism in the English press. Um, so he's, and at a time there was no conscription also. He was a very unlikely candidate to go to war, but he felt constantly pulled towards it. And the two forces, the, the rival of the poetry, and as it turns out, the arrival of the war, do something rather remarkable to his spirits. And that's not to say that his depression leaves him forever, and certainly there are many moving letters from France 
and he's clearly very miserable and looking forward to the end of the war and coming home. But something does shift in him as Elena Pollock beautifully puts it, staying around in a different key. Now, clearly, he was a difficult man to live with. You mentioned that when we first meet him at the beginning of the book, he's a, he's a hack writer, he's unfulfilled, he's suffering from depression. But also, I was very struck by the fact that he spends remarkably little time at home with his wife and, and family. He's, he's got a very peripatetic lifestyle. What was the, the nature of that lifestyle? What was, what was driving him away from home? Two things, really, one of which was employment, that Edward Thomas relied on the um, employee of London's literary editors for his work, mostly reviewing, as I say, the some commission books. And each week he had to make what he thought were kind of groveling appearances in their office for, for, for work. So his, his life was always satellite around London, and about the first 20 years of his life were in London, or nearly 20 years. So for that, he liked his time away, and uh, for his writing, he liked to work in a study away from home because of the pressures of family and noise. He had three children. So it's partly that, but it was also partly that he was having a difficult time at home. His depression was such that uh, when it overwhelmed him, which he had often done since university when he was an undergraduate, he would often take it out horribly on his family. Uh, his long-suffering wife, Helen, who adored him, would often be the front line of this attack. And sometimes his children too, and he, there were some terrible dinners where he would seem to goad his children to tears, and there were dinners also where he would publicly humiliate home in front of friends. And he loathed himself for it, he couldn't help it. He was absolutely tormented by this sort of grievous depression that plagued him. And he didn't really thought at these times that the kindest thing he could do was to remove himself from these people so he couldn't hurt them. And he did go off his considerable time. Sometimes he'd just walk for days, sometimes he'd be away for weeks. But by 1913, when this book starts, he was more or less not living at home with the family at all. And he does seriously con contemplate suicide and almost sort of enact it at one point early in the book, doesn't he? He does. He thinks about it many times in his adult life. And there is uh, a very moving episode where his wife Helen watches him go to the chest of drawers where she, knew, she knows that he keeps his revolver. And she watched him go up the hill on the shoulder of Mutton Hill, uh, up into the East Hampshire hangars above his house. Uh, and she knows very well what he's going to do. And Thomas himself fictionalises this story, or so he says it's fictionalised, uh, in a short story account. And what seems to have happened is he takes the revolver into the woods and um, tries to go through with the act and is in some way disturbed by a man walking his dog and seems to be so humiliated by the episode. And, uh, in a way, having been discovered, that he doesn't go through with it, and he comes back down the hill, where Helen greets him at the door and says simply, shall I make tea? And he simply says, please. It's also the case that on the day he met Robert Frost, he spent the night before with another poet friend, Walter Delamere, telling Delamere about his suicidal thoughts. And on the day he, he meets Frost for the first time, he's carrying in his pocket what he honestly calls his saviour, which he'd been out to purchase that morning, which is almost certainly seems to me a poison, possibly a pistol, but probably anything that's, that's likely to do him self-harm. So it's a terrible time for him. But the arrival of Robert Frost does rather extraordinary things to his life. And there seem to be moments in his past, like unresolved moments, that he keeps coming back to. For example, there was an instance of a, a walking race, which he could pass in at school. Does anyone say well, why you think what happened and why you think that stuck with him, why it, you know, he couldn't put it behind him as well. Well, perhaps 
no poet since writing up this walked as far as Edward Thomas walking. As we were saying before, it was a process of composition for him and also gathering material for his works and, and life. But his passion for walking began at a very, very early age. And as a child, he would spend all his time not on the streets of London, but in Wandsworth Common, imagining that they were the, the countryside, learning his skills in a way from Richard Jeffries and the artists that he was fascinated by. And at school, during a school sports day, he was by far and away the best walker and would leave the rest of the, the pack behind. But there's a story he tells when leading the school sports day walking race um, a few hundred yards from home. He imagines that he hears a boy coming up behind him, cheating, possibly running. And Thomas is so overwhelmed and frightened by the prospect of being overtaken somehow and not achieving the thing that he probably presumed he would, that he throws the race and he feigns a stitch and he falls down on the side of the grass. And he leaves thinking that that was a more honourable outcome than having lost the race. His father, of course, does not agree and thought it was an act of cowardice and accuses his son of doing that, of, of, of being a coward, in fact. And that charge of cowardice is something that stays with Thomas through his life. And in fact, he and Robert Frost have a very powerful episode with a gamekeeper when they're out walking many, many years later, in which there's a sense of suggestion that the same charge of cowardice comes up again. And Frost goes on to say it's one of the reasons that Thomas went to war. He was also haunted, I was struck by this too, by the loss of a book that he'd been given as a school prize. And the book was called The Key of Knowledge. And again, in retrospect, in his mind, it seemed to loom very, very large. It seemed to be another thing that he couldn't sort of put behind it and relinquish. And I think it's possibly one of the things that fuels Edward Thomas's poems for us as modern users, too. I'm trying to think about why a poem like Adlestrop remains so important to us. And th that sense that you get both in Thomas having lost his book, which he acknowledged being his first full prize that he was given, and the title itself is, 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 seems to be very important and significant. And he loses this book. And he spends much of his adult life thinking about the effects of that and what it was that he lost. And this, this sense of trying to retrieve something in a different space and time that I think a lot of his poems touch on as well. And they seem to move across time and space. And they often seem to get in, particularly like a poem seem to suggest that the senses are capable of travel across time and space in a way that many of us are probably hypnotically drawn by, even if we don't vocalise it or necessarily understand it. I think that ran through ghosted and haunted Thomas throughout his life. Now, an another thing which clearly plagued him for, for many months was the decision whether to go to war, what his, what his feelings about the war were. And he talks about growing into a conscious Englishman. So what, what, were, the, what were the things he was wrestling with during those months before he enlisted? Well, one of them, to some degree, was Englishness. He grew up with one Welsh father and another who was half Welsh, half English. And though he was born in London and visited Wales only on holidays, he felt uh, a calling. He felt very in sympathy with Wales and Celtic literature, as he referred to it, at the time. And in 1908, uh, when pressing the point, he once described himself as um, five-eighths Welsh. But something happens in the war that changes his ideas about it. For one thing, he, he didn't really approve of nationalism. And I think if you asked him today, he wouldn't have really been interested in the question about whether he was English or Welsh. And in fact, he once said that his countrymen were the birds. He was against such um, modern ideas. And actually, he probably would have considered himself uh, a Briton, something much more ancient. And some of his poems talk about the badger as being an ancient Briton. And I think he's he connects himself much more with that. 
But when the war comes out, he, he uh, breaks out. He, he realizes that many of the things he's taken for granted that would be the landscape in which he walked and loved, that he shared with Frost, that he wrote his books about, and that he would also write his poetry about. He realized that that was under threat in a way that he had perhaps not conceived upon. And he challenged himself about the question, well, what would he do if called upon to defend it? You know, would he do anything at all? And it took him a long time to wrestle with that. He wasn't a violent man, and he wasn't a nationalist. He didn't agree particularly with the war. But he realized that something that spoke entirely about him and his life and that enormously to him was under threat, and what would he do to challenge it? And I think that's the moment when he starts to feel he's going into an Englishman. And by this time, Robert Frost and his family had gone back to the United States. And something I didn't realize was that the very famous Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, was written for Edward Thomas in the particular circumstances of his vacillation about what to do about the war. And your, 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 your pages are not fascinating. Well, that, that's a, an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because here's this poem that was recently voted uh, America's favorite. Poem, and it seems to speak to everything American. It seems to be set in England, and it seems to be about one person choosing their own destination and choosing the path they're going to take, and that will make all the difference. And, and the line behind it. The story behind it was nothing of the kind. It, you say it was written by Frost for Edward Thomas because when they were walking in Gloucestershire, Thomas used to say that he'd like to go this way because there was some bird eggs or some wild plants he'd like to show Thomas, and then uh, to show Frost. And when he got there, the nest wouldn't be there, and he would sigh and said, oh, I'm really sorry, we should have gone back the other way. And, and he would try himself heavily for it, and Frost just thought this was a hoot. Uh, and Frost um, sent him a poem that, um, in Frost's eye, was uh, a poem of mock seriousness, about Thomas's inability to choose, but Thomas took it rather badly, and he thought it was about his inability to choose between prose and poetry. Also, he, critically, uh, about his incision to choose an academic war. And in fact, the poem becomes a kind of turning point in their friendship. I mean, we, we, we've touched on the, on the, the centre of the cross a number of times in this interview, but I mean, so looking at it head on, was it, was it really the, the, the determining relationship of Thomas's life, you know, the, the one which, which nourished him most as, a, as an artist and a, and a human being? I think it was. I really do think it was, because I think Frost unlocked in him the confidence to move into the realm of poetry, which is something that was clearly apparently waiting for him, even if he didn't quite understand it. And what an extraordinary output he produced in those, in those two years. Really quite extraordinary. But I think it also alleviated his unhappiness with his other situations, whether they be at home, that they used to talk about marriage and duty. And he found in Frost someone that he could just relate to. And in some ways, for the first time, they didn't need to always talk. They were close enough friends that they could walk in silence. And they mirrored one another, and Frost referred to Thomas as um, the pair of them being a pair of literary Siamese twins. Uh, they were often considered to look rather than alike. And some people think some of their poetry is alike, too. So I think it, I think it was the, the friendship that fundamentally changed Thomas's life. And Frost, too. And Frost of course, says that Thomas was the only brother they ever had. There's, an, there's a, a fascinating literary might have been in the book when Thomas is being trained before he goes to France. And both he and Wilfred Allen are in the same regiment, the Artist Rifles, at the same time. And yet, as far as we know, there was no, there was no literary connection there. They, went, they didn't know what the both of them were on the verge of becoming significant poets. Well, at that 
is 1915. Both writers are keeping their their work very much to themselves. Um, Wilfred Owen has written not very much work and of not very high quality at the time, but he's showing only a few close friends. And of course, it will take the experience of 1917 for it to really explode open his poetry when he meets the scene. And Edward Thomas uh, is rising by that time, but he's disguising it from his um, camp, one camp comrades. And often when he's writing down his poetry, he writes it out his prose, putting the stanzas in paragraphs and having capital letters just to mark the, the new lines and then sending off to his friend Alan McCarthy for typing, because he doesn't want his comrades to know that he's, he's writing poetry. So it's a shame because I do think if either men had declared themselves, they would have certainly met and got on extremely well and had so much to talk about. Their, their characters and their sensitivities, I think, were very similar. But Thomas was a map reading instructor, and it seems almost certain to me that Wilfred Owen would have been in his class. And I would have thought the two of them probably met and discussed map making and many things of this kind after the classes without ever connecting but uh, the two of them were poets, because neither of them were really published for their poetry then either, so they wouldn't have known this. But this is an absolutely tantalizing near miss, as you say. And how fascinating to think about the effect that Thomas might have had on the young impression of the Fulham at times. And Thomas is not at this stage, well, is not on the way to becoming a war poet in the sense that, that Sassoon or Owen were. His, his mode remains oblique. The war, the war is there, it's refracted, but it's not, it's not directly confronted in the way that other poets were to. Well, most of Thomas's war, don't forget, was conducted in England. He enlisted in the summer of 1915, and he was in England until January 1917, first of all, when he was a map instructor, and then he joins the artillery. So he, he never writes poetry from the trenches. In fact, his last poem was written in England before he departs. Whereas Owen was very much based on the French warfare, and Alan was in the trenches. Thomas was in the artillery, so he was a little bit further back. And actually, Thomas's poetry is unusual for that, because most of the poets that we do cherish from the First World War were French poets. And it's interesting, because I think it reflects the tone and the certain kind of distance of Thomas's war poetry, that he might have done something like the artillery, which is set a little bit further back. But he's a tremendously good war poet, but much of the war conducts itself in the margins. The fallen tree that he sits on is in the field because the field hand has gone to war and been killed in plants and can't remove it. The harrow is rusty in the corner of the farmyard covered up with tall metals because again the metals haven't been cleared and the harrow isn't there for, because the young man has gone off to France. And throughout his, one of his best poems, I think, the war is absolutely all around him, though he never mentions it. And it's, it somehow amplifies the effect for me sometimes. Matthew, what do you think the legacy of, of Thomas has been for English verse? I think for that large question to you. It's an interesting question because at the time Thomas was largely published after his death, he had a handful of poems published in England before he served France. And when he was out in France, an anthology came out that had a display um, of 18 of his poems, and they got a good review, and that was about the last thing he saw. So, and then his book comes out afterwards. But the friends that he had, apart from France, that saw his poetry whilst he was living, were fairly nonplussed by it. And in fact, the immediate reception of his book was mixed. I mean, some of it was very good, but some of it wasn't. And that's partly because he was out of keeping with his time. He and, he and Frost were. He wasn't uh, quite like some so-called Georgian poets. He certainly wasn't like the images poets. He was not like the Victorian poets. But he was a poet that seemed to me to be ever 
ever relevant today for two reasons, I think. One of which was the process of his composition, and the second of which was some of the themes that he writes about. The themes are in a way a little bit easier to talk to. I think Andrew Motion was the person who described it as Thomas as a hinge between the modern and uh, the Victorian era and our modern era. And that seems absolutely right. And his themes about ecology, his, his, he had an unrivaled eye for the English landscape at a time of um, irreversible change. And he also had a fascinating understanding about the relationship between nature and human beings that say his Georgian poets didn't always have. They tended to kind of preserve and pickle their subjects. Thomas didn't. He understood that he wasn't the same as them. His course of action affected them. And that seems terribly timely today. But there's also something about the way his poems and his syntax are so unusual that when you read his poems, it makes you think as if he's thinking them as you read them. They seem to be turning over in his head. They seem sometimes to be almost incomplete. They're not, they're not punctuated by big full stops in a way that sometimes frosts are. Frost often has a line where the, the line itself is a unit of sense. They might be ten circles and it starts on the left hand side and it finishes on the right hand side. Thomas's tend to tip and tumble over the line endings that make, for me, reading them feel as if they're in his head and they're in my head. And it means you carry them around you as if you're still thinking of them. They haven't quite come onto paper yet and they haven't quite been finalised. I think that's one of the reasons why he remains fascinating to so many people today that it doesn't date, it seems to be in a perpetual present. Matthew Hollis. Now All Roads Lead to France is out now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors in the archive on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. I'll be back again shortly with another Faber podcast. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.